So I had uh, Linda read the scripture this morning because I didn't know how to pronounce um, a number of those um, <laughs> words. Um, in, uh, in Acts 11.26, uh, believers were first referred to as Christians in the church. And that was at Antioch. And it was from this church that Barnabas and Saul had been sent to Jerusalem with a financial gift in order to assist the beleaguered disciples of uh, Jerusalem. But at the end of chapter 12, those two men now, accompanied by John Mark, have returned. The church at Antioch replaces Jerusalem as the hub for the Christian movement. Consider its ministry team, if you will. It was a group of men who were a reflection of the world that Christ had called his disciples to reach. Barnabas was a Levite, otherwise known in Hebrew culture as a Jewish priest, and he was from Cyprus. That he was from Cyprus means that he was a Jew who had been scattered beyond Judah into Gentile lands. And then there's Simeon, called Niger, the term Niger means black, and most biblical scholars surmise that he was of African descent. He thus shows that there is no distinction along racial lines in the church. Lucius of Cyrene, he was also likely a Hellenistic Jew from a Greek colony. According to Acts 11.20, individuals from Cyprus, think Barnabas, and from Cyrene, think here Lucius, founded the church in Antioch. Now, Manian, who had been brought up with the Herod the Tetrarch, um, his name indicates that he too was um, a Hellenistic Jew, but of significance about him would have been his wealth and his power. The fact that he was brought up with the third of the five Herods, now that Herod would have been the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded, indicated that he came from a position of high station, that he knew the ruling dynasty intimately. He shows that there is no distinction along economic lines in the church. And there's Saul of Tarsus. We know the story of Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, born in a culturally rich Greek city. He had formerly persecuted the church. He shows that there is no distinction along ethnic lines, neither Jew nor Gentile. And he shows that the gospel is indeed meant for everyone. This was the church staff, if you will, at Antioch, a racially, economically, ethnically, and religiously diverse, integrated group of prophets and teachers who were well-equipped to go into the lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such a diverse church could say to Jews, to Greeks, to Romans, to Africans, to the rich, to the poor, to male, to female, to free, to slave, the gospel is for you, and I know this is true because of what my home church at Antioch looks like. To be able to deliver that message, the Lord did not intend for them ever to grow comfortable or to rest on their laurels. James Montgomery Boyce says, a church that does not know where it is coming from, why it is here, and where it is going is not likely to be of use to the gospel enterprise. 
The Lord intends for those of us in the church to be ready to be sent out for whatever service and to whatever purpose that he calls us. And to be a ready church, we must be a spiritually alert church. Notice how verse 2 begins. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. As a redeemed body of believers, we come in the name of Jesus Christ to go out for the cause of Jesus Christ. Give this then some thought. We gather to worship for what? We worship to be equipped and to be sent. We are equipped and sent for what? To the service of the gospel. It is why my vision for our church is to be a worship plus one people. It is why our mission at Winston-Salem Baptist Church is to love one another, to love the Metro East, and to love the greater world like Jesus does. Whether or not a person agrees with that vision or that objective, this much is certain. From the church at Antioch, the missionary era begins. The word missionary comes from a Latin word that means to send. The purpose of their being sent is to serve in places where the name of Christ is not known and where the true God is not worshipped. We are sent to serve. And notice first how missionaries are commissioned and sent. Missionaries are commissioned and sent by the Holy Spirit. And this means we should understand who the Holy Spirit is and his various functions. Unfortunately, we in the church often neglect the Holy Spirit. Francis Chan wrote a book that he fittingly titled The Forgotten God, reversing our tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is not a power that we use, but a person who empowers and uses us. Recall from Acts chapter 8 in our study how Simon wants to get a hold of and use the Holy Spirit. But here in chapter 13, we find that the Holy Spirit gets hold of Barnabas and Paul so as to use them. So it is the Holy Spirit is God. And his activity is diverse. He is the means by which regeneration begins in those who will believe, as we will see later in this account. And for those who submit to Christ as Savior and Lord, they are baptized in the Holy Spirit, as we have found and as we have seen in our ongoing study in the book of Acts. If we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 13 that we are sealed by him until the day of our redemption. But the Apostle Paul also reminds us in Ephesians 4 verse 30 that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. He reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 5 19 that we can quench the Holy Spirit. And rather than grieve or quench him, we should be filled with the Spirit and grow in the fruit of the Spirit. 
Further, those in ministerial service should be anointed by the Holy Spirit for the calling to which he has uniquely appointed them. Nothing or no one else can make a person fit for ministry. Charles Spurgeon once gave this advice, if you can do anything other than serve in the ministry, then do it. If you can stay out of the ministry, stay out of the ministry. And yet for those who receive the call, let them remember that they should surrender to the Holy Spirit and that they should go forward under the guidance of the church. So it is that missionaries are also commissioned and sent by the church. When the church laid hands upon Barnabas and Saul, it was saying that it identified with them. It partnered with them in their work. In an old film called Backdraft, there is a scene near the end where one Chicago firefighter, Axe, is being held by the hand above a blazing fire by another firefighter, Bull, fitting names, Axe, Bull. Realizing that Bull cannot pull him up safely, Axe calls out, let me go, Bull. At which point Bull says, you go, I go. The church essentially says to missionaries that it sends out, we support you in this endeavor. We are part of you. You go, we go. And to partner with missionaries in their endeavor means a willingness to make sacrifices for them. It means to pray faithfully for them. It means to provide monetary gifts for them. It means offering furlough for them. As they go, we go. This much is clear. The church must remain a sending and serving church. So second, notice how missionaries are sent as God's ambassadors. At the end of his poem Invictus, William Ernest Henley writes, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That is a humanist mindset, but certainly not the mindset of a Christian missionary. Oliver and Linda shared with me ahead of today's message what they were going to say, what they were being led to share. And it struck me at one point in her testimony how Miss Linda said when she heard about the profound needs in India, I'm glad the Lord has not called me there, but to South America. Only the Lord knew what she did not yet know. Linda was not the master of her fate. Christ was the captain of her soul. Barnabas and Paul were not the master of their fate. Christ was the captain of their souls. Knowing that and submitting to one's calling provides an uncanny sense of courage we know that the Lord is in control, not ourselves. Psalm 23 begins, the Lord is my shepherd. It goes on to say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
If we are God's ambassadors, we can be assured that Christ is with us, whatever we might face, to protect us and to provide us. He is our rod and our staff. And how blessed an assurance this proves for a missionary who often encounters profound spiritual warfare. Barnabas and Paul, along with the help of John Mark, do not initially go that far from Antioch. In fact, they went to Barnabas' home island. And while there, they come into contact with the proconsul Sergius Paulus and his attendant, a false prophet named Elimus Bargesus. And just like the Gentile centurion Cornelius, Sergius Paulus was a seeker of truth. And as a seeker of truth, he invites Saul, who from this point forward will be called Paul, and Barnabas to teach him about the Lord. Let me tell you, there is nothing in this world that the devil dreads more than a man who opens his mind and dares to think on matters of truth. Billy Graham talks about the act of changing one's mind. And rather than me speak Billy Graham's words, I'd like for you to hear it from him. Many people have made statements about this very thing. Freud said people change by renewing their fixations. Adler, the great psychiatrist, used to say people change by renewing their goals. Rollo May used to say they change by renewing their efforts towards self-realization. But God says people change by renewing their minds. The Bible has a lot to say about the mind. When you come to Jesus Christ, you don't commit intellectual suicide. You come to Christ with your mind and you change your mind and that's repentance. You change your mind toward God. You change your mind toward sin. You change your mind toward yourself. And you change your mind toward your neighbor. And you begin to love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible is very clear. To change from a defeated, problem-oriented person depends on first changing the mind. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit who opens up our minds to the possibility of the truth of the gospel. He does that in the case of Sergius Paulus, who the text tells us comes to believe in Jesus. He does that in the life of every Christian. He changes your mind about who Jesus is and how you need him as your Savior and as your Lord. And so you invite Christ to come, to dwell in you, and to change you. But it is also the work of the Holy Spirit to confront those whose aim it is to turn people aside from the truth of the gospel. This is actually the greatest cause of spiritual warfare because false teaching and false ideology is Satan's chief aim in preventing the spread of the gospel. And there's nothing more that Satan wants to prevent than the spread of the gospel. Those who work in unchurched lands discover the awful power of this opposition. And I don't mind telling you that this opposition is active all around you. The most severe words of the Bible, both Old 
and new are directed at those who stand between individuals and God's truth. Certainly, the fruit of the Spirit is love, but there is nothing actually more loving than to oppose whatever it is that stands in the way of someone else entering into the fullness of life through Jesus Christ. There's nothing more loving that we can say than to anyone and everyone the truths of the gospel. Think on this for a moment. Who does Jesus speak most harshly toward? The sinner caught in adultery? No. The sinner involved in inappropriate taxation practices? The most hated, if you will, among their own people? No. The outcast leper? No. The outcast Samaritan? No. Or the religious person who taught salvation by the law? Ah, there it is. If you go to Matthew chapter 23, you find that there Jesus pronounces dreadful woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees to those whose pride denied that they had a need of Messiah. Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 27, they are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Now the reason Jesus' words are so direct and seemingly harsh is because the Pharisees and the scribes were keeping others from rightly following after God. They were more concerned about their religious position than they were about having an authentic relationship with the Lord. But at the end of Christ's rebuke, he tells them that he longs to gather them in just like hens gather their chicks. Jesus was speaking firmly against the deception of Satan so that all peoples, all peoples, including those like Elimus or Jesus, might come to know truth and find life in him and life in abundance. So that is why the Apostle Paul is so firm and so direct with the Lemus or Jesus. The Holy Spirit fills Paul with his presence in order to rebuke a man who was only concerned with his political position and not with the ways of Jesus, whose name, by the way, he claimed. You see, Elimus was a Jew. And he may very well have taken on the name of Jesus because of the miracles that he had heard that the prophet Jesus performed. In other words, he was simply using the concept of Jesus for a sense of personal gain. Only Jesus is not some source that we plug into. He is the one true Savior we must trust in and rely upon. There is an important message in all this for each and every Christian who now remain a part of the missionary era. And let me say, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a part still of the missionary era. Because like Oliver said, the Great Commission is still ongoing. The greatest peril, the most severe aspect of spiritual warfare is any ideology 
our worldview that offers a substitute to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. That's any ism. Be wary of any ism that the world tries to insert in place of the one true Savior. Humanism, rationalism, legalism, agnosticism, atheism, Hinduism, Buddhism, pantheism, nationalism, relativism, wokeism, and ism, and ism, and ism. We must stand ready as the church filled with the Holy Spirit to speak out against whatever false views hinder men and women, boys and girls, from coming to an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. I do know this much is true. Never share your faith and you will never experience ridicule. Never stand for righteousness on an explosive social issue and you will never experience rejection. Never go to places like Cyprus and you will never experience such heart-convulsing confrontations with Satan. Ah, but why are we here? Church, why are we here to be sent to serve? Many years ago, a great missionary rally was held in the Royal Albert Hall of London, England. And present for that rally was the Duke of Wellington, otherwise known as the Iron Duke. You know, I want that name, like Iron Gibson. I don't know, something, right? I mean, here he was, the Iron Duke. It was the armies. He, he led the armies that at one time had defeated Napoleon. I suppose the reason why I'm not Iron Gibson is because I've never done anything like that, Joe. You know what I'm saying? But one of the clergymen, I guess I'm one of the clergymen, right? He, he turns to Wellington and asks him, My Lord Duke, do you believe in the task of missions? The Duke asked him in turn, what are your marching orders, young man? Well, of course, he said, Jesus says to go and make disciples of all nations. Then so it is, the Duke replied. You have nothing else to say about it. As a soldier, you must obey your orders. So it is, Winstanley Baptist Church, onward Christian soldiers. We have nothing else to say about it but to continue on with the missionary era to which we have been made a part. Will we take the gospel wherever he sends us? Will we serve in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord? Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for missionaries like Oliver and Linda who were faithful to the calling Holy Spirit you placed upon their heart. Like Linda said, it was never about them. It's never about us. Holy Spirit, fill us. Send us. 
that we might follow our marching orders and serve for the great King Jesus, who is the King of our hearts. Lord, I, I'm, just, I'm just burdened this morning. I'm burdened for those who have lost and have lost so much. I'm burdened for the lost who don't have a relationship with Christ. I'm burdened for people within our fold here at Winstanley who are dealing with so many difficulties. I'm burdened, Lord. But what I know is, Holy Spirit, you are greater than our burdens. And through you, we have power because you, third person of the Trinity, indwell us. And you equip us. And you encourage us. And you go out before us so that we do not go in our own strength. Oh, no. We go in your power, God. And so today we pray, equip us, send us, use us. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And that is our song, right? Here am I. Here am I. Here am I. Send me. Let's stand together as we sing. If you have a decision to make for Christ today, the altar is open.